Hi, Cody Royal back with you for Where Others Won't, episode 81. This show has always been designed to be non-time sensitive, so I urge you to scroll right, right back through the episodes and you'll find magnificent interviews with people like Adam Grant, James Kerr, the author of Legacy, Whitney Johnson, Sam Walker, Paddy McCord from Netflix, there's Angela Ruggiero, who's got an Olympic gold medal, there's Tasha Urich, Mike Gervais, and my mate, Paddy Steinford. So click on See All Episodes, scroll right, right back, and have a re-listen to some of the early episodes of Where Others Won't. My guest on this episode is Fiona Murden, a psychologist and author of Mirror Thinking, Why Role Models Make Us Human. With behavior change and role modeling, both hot topics in the coaching world, this is a timely conversation with a great guest. Where Others Won't, episode 81, is with Fiona Murden. Fiona Merton, welcome to Where Others Won't. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Really good. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. No, not a problem. I love the uh, the, the 20 minutes before you hit record and <laughs> when you just jump straight to friendship. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had captured some of what we were talking about, but uh, yeah, really excited to have you on, particularly around the book that you've just written, uh, your most recent book, but also really something that has come into our world in coaching more recently around role modeling. But you've kind of come at it with a, a really unique angle in that you're talking about the mirror neuron. And in your marketing around the book and in the description, you kind of talk about it as this thing that's really impacts us all all the time but we've never heard of so tell us what it is what is the the mirror neuron and how does it impact us so the mirror neuron is really interesting as a sort of concept um it was found in uh parma italy by a researcher uh, called rizzolati and they were actually looking at monkeys Um, and trying to understand the fine motor movements of their hands. Um, And one day they were sat eating their lunch and they weren't doing anything with the monkeys and the monkeys were sat there. It's awful because you think of the electrodes in their brain, but we won't go there. And the monkeys are sat there not doing anything, but they noticed activity in the brain of the monkeys. And that activity related to the experimenters lifting their lunch to their mouth and putting it in their mouth. And so the monkeys weren't moving, they weren't doing anything, they were just watching. And that they then turned as the mirror neuron. So it's a neuron that enables us in the brain to watch without doing. And because of that, it helps us to learn, but it helps us to learn everything we know from how to behave in social situations, how to speak, how to walk, how to talk, how to anticipate what's happening next with someone it it helps us empathize with people it's really at the root of everything we do because it's this 
capability to read, to observe, to translate and understand it in our own world and then repeat things. So this is really kind of, I guess, always active, is it? So it's always scanning and taking in that information and we essentially learn it through other people doing it. Yeah. So we're mm. constantly, like you say, we're constantly scanning our environment, um, depending on where our concentration is, uh, for tiny little iterations and nuances of behavior that we then pick up and incorporate into how we behave. And so as we kind of move that into, you know, role modeling, so who we're observing and who we're observing the most, like we obviously take in a lot from, from our parents, but then as you kind of go through life, you, you know, you think your teachers, you think your uh, grandparents, you think your, you know, you, you walk into a, a work environment and see your boss and you walk yeah. in a sporting environment, you're observing the coach the most clearly. And so like how, how quickly do we kind of pick up on what they're modeling to us and start to replicate it? Well, I, I guess the easiest way, if you go back to the work example, um, if you imagine in a, even in a sporting environment, so if you're a coach and you walk in in your suit and no one else that's there in a similar capacity to you has a suit on, everyone else is wearing a tracksuit. Next time, do you go wearing a tracksuit or do you go wearing a suit? It's just a very, a very simple example where we sort of, we think, well, that's not what's done here. We won't, you know, but there's also things that we don't notice, like tiny nuances of, we notice that maybe someone holds the door open, whereas we're not used to holding the door open. So we think, oh, we, we better hold the door open. Um, and 95% of our cognitive activity is unconscious. So huge amounts of this is going on without us realizing. And what's interesting, what you said there is it parents, yes, they are fundamental or our core caregivers are fundamental to shaping us. And then we look at teens and we see how they're influenced by what's going on around them. But we forget that as adults, things are still influencing us and we're still conforming to the world around us. It's funny because I, I wrote something in the Tough Stuff about this concept without actually knowing what it was but I was talking about how you know your presence as a coach impacts people whether you know it or not and so you know the example that I give to people is and when you say it like this people realize it's like when the CEO kind of walks onto the floor of the office you sit up a little bit straighter and you might actually do your tie up for the first time in in two weeks and you might enunciate your words differently and like a coaching example is the players lift their weights a little bit harder when you're in there, where they're kind of a bit of tomfoolery going on when you're not there. And as soon as you enter the environment and they, they know that you're there, there's just a little bit of extra effort. And, and that's that kind of unconscious element that you, you're talking about is that this is kind of always going on regardless of, of whether we pay attention to it or not. Yeah, and it will have a bigger impact if someone has positional power. So mm. as soon as you're in a coaching role, you have more responsibility, you have positional power. It's just a given. Mm. So whether you think that you're more important or not, whether you think that people should pay attention to you or not, doesn't matter because they will. It's simple as that. Yeah. Talk about that power dynamic a little bit more because this is again something that 
we're grappling with. And I like that you you talk a lot about kind of the the evolutionary biology behind all of this and, and groups and in groups versus out groups and things like that. But you know, we're we're trying to like power is a dirty word right now because it's being used negatively in leadership. However, we can't deny the fact that it exists and it can be useful and it can it, it is part of a group dynamic. And, and so just keep going on that kind of power dynamic and, and like how it's impacting us in, in those group scenarios or situations. So I think um, there's, a, there's a nice example of talking about CEOs. So there's someone who I've become very friendly with over the years, who's the chief exec of Doc Martens and uh, Kenny Wilson. And he'll always say to people, I don't think about what I have to do today. I think about how I have to be today. Mm, love it. And, and he, you know, he'll say, I've had years and years of leadership development. He worked at Levi's for a long time. They really invested time and effort in that development. But I don't think that's the case, A, of all leaders in anything, and B, of coaches. Um, but another example I will give there is uh, there's a guy called um, David Soul, who was a, a Scotland rugby captain. And he led uh, Scotland to victory in the Grand Slam in, in at Murrayfield in 1990. And, you know, it, he is such a lovely man. He's calm. He's considered. You feel his presence when you're with him. He doesn't have to say much, but he's got a really strong presence. And that was reflected on how the team walked out that day onto the pitch. Um, and you, there's one guy, actually, I will read you a snippet here, which I have. Someone said afterwards that David Soul is another of those players who's remembered and virtually defined by one moment. In this case, it was when he made the decision for his side to take the now famous walk onto the pitch for the Grand Slam decider against England at Murrayfield in 1990. As a statement of resolve, it was a masterstroke from which England never recovered. And basically, it was that calm, slow march onto the pitch, which reflected his personality more than anyone else's or anyone else's style. And it wasn't done in a forceful way. It was powerful. And it was immensely powerful, the impact it had. Um, but I think there's this piece around power. It's you do hold power in certain positions and you hold power as an elite athlete over populations and you hold power as a coach and it's thinking about the ethics of that is how do I use that power yeah and again you know not a lot covered on either of those examples that you've just given there in like coach education so one who do I have to be you know we we, we know the exact distance that the cones need to be apart and that, that seems to be what we're fixated on, but not who you have to be as, as the leader of that group. Um, and then, yeah, how to ethically and I would say productively and positively use that yeah. power because the power is there. Let's not pretend that it's not there. It is there. It's there whether it's a label or not. It's, there are people with presence. There are influences. There are titles that exist this is a kind of a, this is a natural in-group thing. And so let's not pretend just because power is being used negatively that we're not going to use power. Um, but again, how to do it and, and ways to do it, ways to 
use those in different circumstances, whether it's, yeah, the, the march, whether it's, you know, projecting something onto the team um, or even just, yeah, the mood of the team and, and how to lift them up and have them mirror your optimism and positivity after maybe a, a bad loss or something like that. And mood is immensely contagious. You know, we talked about it a bit with the, the pandemic because we were saying people, yeah. you could see contagious behavior. You know, one person went out and bought toilet roll. So did everyone else. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in the UK, we've just had it with fuel. One person buys fuel. Everyone goes, by, goes and buys fuel. But there's so much evidence to show that actually at the level of mood, we're impacted so dramatically by those people around us and if you think about it if you think about you imagine coming home from work and you're in a great mood and you've got some great news to tell your partner and you storm in and you're like oh yeah I want to tell you and they just look at you with this sour face and then they turn their head and they walk away stomping and you think are you still in a good mood probably not <laughs> you know but but at a level of being a coach your mood, people won't be consciously aware that they're picking up on your mood, but they will be picking up on your mood. Yeah, and this kind of touches on really what, what I've written about is that we don't factor in the emotional toll on coaches. So there's all of this expectation and duties. And, you know, I always think about, it blows my mind. So in major league baseball, a, a manager has to front the media twice a day, 162 times a year. And that's before the playoffs and before spring training. And so, you know, like something like that wearing on you and your emotional tank. Mm -hmm. And so if, if the tank is draining all of that stuff before you even get to the team, then you've got to find something even more to keep the, the, the team optimistic and up and, and buoyant. And, you know, in, you're in three time zones in a week and it's like, Hey, you know, come on boys. You just got to you know get this next one or whatever it may be. And so to, to not talk about that or to help coaches and leaders be able to navigate that, I think is a, is a relatively huge miss because it doesn't give you access to the actual talent that you're, you're trying to use, which is to coach and to lead. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, the similarities with the business setting, I work in medicine a lot with surgeons mm. and doctors and nurses and, and, in, and in business. And being a leader, whether it's being in charge of an ICU ward during a pandemic or whether it's running an organisation or whether it's being a coach, is a huge, a huge, um, yes, we know it's responsibility, but it's a lonely place to be because mm. you are the person who does have to front to the media. You are the person who has to be on the ball with your message every day. You are the person who people look to for direction and you the buck stops with you. And that's why, I mean, I mentioned before we came on about your blog coaches need coaches too and I just I, I think it's brilliant because yeah coaches need coaches too because not only to help them see the things that they might not see so you know when you're in the middle of something you don't necessarily see that there's a strange dynamic going on in the team and something needs to be addressed but you also need that emotional support and you don't need to package it as emotional support if that doesn't sound very mm, nice performance you know, 
a performance, whatever you want to call it. But at the end of the day, really, it's about having that support. Are there any other maybe unintended or unexpected benefits of kind of this mirror neuron or, or, or anything in that world that maybe people wouldn't expect? I, I mean, I think the empathy bit's really interesting mm. um, because empathy is so complex and it's fundamentally what makes us human is being able to read and understand someone else's experience of a situation. And as say, for example, a sports player, you're looking at the, the opposition and you're trying to work out and anticipate what their move is and their next move and how are they feeling and how are they gonna respond and, and what happens if you kick it that way or you hit the ball that way. So there's all those elements, but there's also the just day-to-day -day elements of connecting with other people. And one of the things that I think is really worrying is that social media and screens limit our ability to fine tune this, this sort of capability in our brain because it's continually evolving and tuning, which the good news is we can improve our empathy. Mm. So it, it, you, you can improve your, or I call it emotional wisdom. But some of the bad news is that the more time we spend on screens, the less time we're spending on those tiny little iterations and interactions and nuances that build that capability. And that capability, it's not just for saying, oh, are you okay? <laughs> Putting your arm around someone. It's for understanding how to be human. Yeah. Do you think we're kind of missing, like I've always thought about it. So in a, in a pure sense, empathy can't exist, right? You can't have perfect empathy. You can't fully understand what it is to live in someone else's shoes and experience the world through their eyes. And so it's really a process of empathizing and maybe degrees. So you might be able to you know, get to 0 0.4 out of one or something like that. But do you, do you see us kind of missing that, that process of empathy? Like we, even how we talk about it, right? We say you either have it or you don't, when really that's not true at all. It's the other way around. You have degrees of it. You do, you have degrees of it. And, and I mean, I think about it and I've learned to process my empathy differently when I'm in a work environment. Because mm. when I first became a psychologist, I felt everything that everyone yeah. was feeling. Yeah. And, and it's not a very helpful place to be. Um, <laughs> but, but I think what the danger is, and we see this a lot in medicine, um, and there's a lot of research across the world that shows it, when medics get to year three of medicine, they, their empathy levels drop. And that's the first year that they have interaction with patients. And what what is probably happening there is they uh, can't cope with seeing people dying and not being able to help them. And so mm -hmm. they shut off their empathy. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a difference. There's, so we have this emotional empathy, it's painful. We, 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 we empathize with what someone's feeling and we feel that pain. But there's something called cognitive empathy, which is actually really, really healthy but we tend to just go to the, right, I'm going to shut down my empathy because it doesn't feel very nice. <laughs> um, rather than going, actually, how can I go through that emotional to being cognitive? And, and I'd liken it to being, you know, if you get 
if you're in a coffee shop and someone puts you put you you choose your seat and you're quite pleased with the seat you've got and you just have to pop to the counter to get something you come back someone sat there you're really really like I don't want to use bad language on your podcast but you're really annoyed um and you feel <laughs> really peed off um but you don't shout at that person because you think come on it doesn't matter mm. it's all it's yeah it's not the end of the world the way we process that emotion is very similar to the way we can process empathy. We can move it from that feeling to what we do with that feeling. And that's a really massively helpful place for leaders, coaches, athletes, every human being to be in, because it gives us the ability to read, connect, understand, anticipate, but it also means that we're not wearing ourselves down emotionally. Yeah. Do you have any tricks or, or triggers that you found or that others have used that you've liked to get to that first state? The, the, first, the emotional empathy or the cognitive? Both. Both. Okay. So, so the emotional empathy, you do see people stop. So it's just like, for whatever reason, I don't want to do that. And developing emotional, developing, let's call it emotional intelligence for now. Sure. Is, um, I've seen like one leader I saw, he, he got a first from Cambridge. He'd been voted most likely to succeed from his Harvard MBA. Um, mm. He'd had all these scholarships. He was absolutely brilliant. But he'd always worked with very, very bright people. And he was going for this leadership role in a very big organization where he would have been leading hundreds of people who were much more um, sort of, they were in the field, they were operators. And I actually had to assess a few people for this role. And my, my uh, recommendation was that he probably shouldn't get that role because it would take a different skill set to lead these people. Right. Uh, but he's really determined and really motivated. And, and he was like, All right, I want to learn to be more emotionally intelligent. I was like, okay, this will be interesting. <laughs> but because he was so motivated, he did. To the extent that I mean, I got to know him, I coached him for a while, quite a lot more. I got to know his wife and his wife said to me, you know, he never used to talk to anyone in any of the supermarkets or anything like that. And now she said, I'll go into Sainsbury's, which in the UK is sort of like our local Walmart or supermarket or, um, Love blows and 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 like the cashier's like, oh, how is he? How's he getting on? How's he doing that? And it, the the point is, he was a nice person. He was authentic, and the way we did it was literally tuning in the whole time. When you're talking to someone, what are you taking from that conversation? What are you understanding about that conversation? What can you learn about the other person? How much can you listen? But not listen while you're thinking about what you're going to say next, but listen to that person. And it sounds really simple, but it's those things that start adding up to developing your empathy. I'm going to give a shout out to my friend Emil Stadham here. He, I don't know if he even knows that he said this, but uh, we're having coffee and he said to me, the trigger can basically always be, isn't that interesting? And so when you're, you know, unconscious and someone's just taking your seat in the, in the coffee shop and you get back and you're angry, so you can look at the social situation and say, isn't that interesting? Because then it makes you go, 
here's a person that's walked into a coffee shop that's not me and they've seen a spare seat and they've gone and sat in it. Is that unreasonable? No, absolutely not. Okay, well, why am I angry? And you can also turn, isn't that interesting internally and say, isn't it interesting that I got angry at that? And, you know, you can kind of plot that over time and look at it and go, isn't it interesting that I keep getting angry that people take my seat? <laughs> or, <laughs> or isn't it interesting that I've actually improved my ability to not get angry when someone takes my seat? Um, but I still, you know, I still get angry at people in the, in the pub <laughs> when they're cheering for, you know, Manchester City instead of Manchester United or whatever. <laughs> Maybe I need to work on that a little bit more. But, yeah, the, the trigger was, isn't that interesting? I liked that really good I love that I'm a real fan of curiosity and I think that's a way of using curiosity which is really practical um I mean the other thing I say to people is uh when, when you're in a group situation and trying to read things better is be a detective so think of your favorite detective watch listen what can you notice what and it's amazing you have like you sit for half an hour with a group of people and you notice the tiny little mannerisms and the change of the tone of the voice and and that's all feeding your self-awareness and your emotional intelligence but it's also quite good fun mm. well I would say that wouldn't I because I'm a psychologist <laughs> <laughs> so keep going on that um you know, the, the emotional intelligence in terms of groups, because one-on-one -on -one settings is, is quite different from picking up on the energy and the, the read and the instinct of a group. And, you know, a lot of the coaches listening to this will either directly coach a, a group or, you know, yeah, have been executive with a lot of people underneath them and, and trying to pick up on those cues to kind of get a sense of how is the group feeling? And I think that's, um, it's a switch from looking at what strategy are we using? What technique are we using? How are we getting to our conclusion? To literally observing the emotion and the behavior of that group, quietly observing. It's not contributing, it's not interfering with, because as soon as you do that, the dynamic changes. It changes, yeah. Yeah, but it's quietly watching and and specifically keep bringing your mind back to I am watching for the behavior and the mood and the emotion and how and when it changes. Because you might find that there's one person that inadvertently have been shutting down someone else and you've just never noticed it, not because you, you don't care or you're not emotionally intelligent, but because your mind was on what tactic are we going to use or you know, have, how, are we going to meet our targets on time or those sorts of things? So it has to be a conscious switch in what you're looking for. Yeah. And I think I've been sitting on this a lot recently is I think what you start to get there is you, you tap into instinct. And again, you know, scientists can argue all they like. And, you know, in our world, it's, it's uh, the, the math people, the analytics people, that whether there is instinct in basketball or baseball or whatever or not. But when you, for me, in a human-to-human -human endeavor, there is built-in instinct. It is undeniable that we have instincts for each other. And, and you know, you've heard all the super strength stories and, and we can get people out of trouble and we can empathize immediately with someone if we see them get hit by a car and we run to their aid and all that sort of stuff 
So it's in there. And you're right, like that process of just kind of sitting back and, and removing yourself and, and just watching how it all plays out. There is actually an instinct in there. And when you, this is what I, I try to get a lot of my coaches to work on is when you get that instinct, often it's close to right. Yeah. Because it's naturally in there. And it's when you interrupt your own instinct that you start to actually make probably calls that are closer to, to wrong or, or detrimental. And if, if you look at that from a neuroscientific perspective, it, it's allowing your brain to concentrate on the right things to then process the thousands and millions of situations you've been in throughout your life, which have trained your brain on this isn't right, or this is right. This tends to have this outcome, this tends, which you're not even aware of, but your hmm. brain will be working at. And on top of that, yes, there are things that are just... You know, we're far more altruistic than and pro-social. There's more and more evidence to suggest we're actually very pro-social as a species than we realise, but we have to allow ourselves to be like that and take a step away from the do-do-do-do-do. How does culture, and I mean international culture or country culture, factor into this in terms of how it kind of teaches us and how it impacts the, you know, the behavior and, um, you know, kind of ideals of different people. It's massive. So if you look at a baby and a mother, the interaction between a baby and a mother in the West um, and say Asian culture is really different. And that immediately starts changing the way a child develops. So iteration upon iteration upon iteration, but those tiny little nuances, you can see actually quite clearly in the way mothers behave. But in Western culture, we're far more individualistic. Mm. Um, in Eastern culture, it's far more collective. And that starts right from the beginning. And that shapes your neural pathways in your brain. So it, it, and then you're saturated by it in terms of what other people are doing. So it reinforces. So yeah, it has a massive impact on how we see the world, how we process things, how we experience things, how we interact with what's going on around us. Yeah, and then you talk about that saturation. I think the challenge that we're kind of walking into now is now that we've kind of reached this, some semblance of globalization, there's now a need to understand all of those cultures and nuances because you might be dealing with 20 different nuances whereas previously it was like americans are motivated by x <laughs> and all of my people are americans and we can just kind of have this one idea now you're trying to grab from all over the world and yes you know a, a, an immigrant family may have raised the child in in uh, in america or canada but there's still that that, you know, again, those formative years that you talked about that might have been influenced by a different culture, a different part of the world. Uh, and so you can see how it starts to become really complex. Absolutely. I mean, my mother-in-law is Chinese um, in terms of her ethnicity, but she grew up in South Africa, um, speaking English and Afrikaans. Uh, and now she lives in England. You know, and so, and you, we were talking beforehand, you're from Melbourne, your wife's from Ireland. 
um, I'm really boring, but you know, most people have that sort of, I think the, the melee of cultures, it's not just saying, like you say, if you're from America and you're American, that's how you are. It's because you may be an American who lived in Australia for six months, then you lived in the UK for five years, then you moved to Ireland for two years, then you moved to Sweden for three years, you know, there's, and all of those things impact who you are as a person. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's the magic of the world, I think, now that we, we are getting to this place where, yeah, kind of globalisation has really settled in and, and, yeah, you've got this melting pot. I mean, Toronto, the stats on Toronto, I don't know if you're aware of this, I think at the last census it was 51% of people in the, the greater area weren't born in Canada. Really? So, so not just, you know, not born in, um, in Toronto, not born in the country. And so you've got this pure melting pot where every second person you walk past on the street isn't from here. I love that. I mean, that's one thing I oh, love about London. It's, it's, it's something I, yeah, I really missed in lockdown. I love wandering around London and the smells and the voices and the faces and everything's multicultural. But you're right, it takes a huge amount more understanding because every, everyone's, it's, everyone's different. Um, I mean, I think of it in very simple terms. Years ago, I had to give a workshop on feedback and people had flown in from across Africa, China. Um, I think those, yeah, there were the two main places from um, to, and, and the UK to, for me to run this workshop. And I started telling them how to give feedback. Mm. And I looked at their faces and I was like, hang on, you tell me how you give feedback in your culture. Because I thought, I can't tell them how we do it in England. It might be an English company, but that's not the way to do it. We have to meet somewhere halfway. I have to understand. And, you know, it's like these examples of saving face, of not giving feedback to someone who's older than you, even if they're more junior, and all these nuances that really needed to be taken account of. It's just not straightforward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I slipped up. I gave some <laughs> feedback to a coach I was working with on one of his presentations. He said, let me know what you see. And I said, well, what I can see is that there's two groups at the back of, uh, at the back seats that are talking while you're speaking. And he goes, they're not talking, they're translating. And uh, again, like just something really simple for me, like Aussie rules is only played in one country and it's Australia, there's no translating. There's no, there's no turning these, these concepts into French and Spanish. And he's like, yeah, they're translating at the back. They're trying to grab onto the one or two words that might make sense out of what I'm saying. And, wow. yeah, like I'd, I'd never experienced that before because I haven't been in those environments. And, you know, again, this is soccer, so it's the global game. And, yeah, that was, that was my slip-up. Like, they're talking. <laughs> It's, it's interesting it's really interesting and I think it's that it's having to, it's really positive because it's having to remind ourselves that we can learn every single time we speak to someone every single interaction we're in every single environment and you know we could think oh god that's really hard work but we actually think that's that's really great that's part of being human and being able to evolve as a person and and grow yeah, absolutely. 
Fiona, um, as I told you beforehand, you're one of my favorite people on Twitter. So I'm going to suggest that people follow you there, but where can they find your books and your podcasts and all the work that you've got going on? Um, I've got a website, which is www. Is it? Maybe it's not www, but it's Fiona. Do we still use that anymore? I don't know. I don't think we do actually. Yeah. It's just my name, Fiona Murden.com. And then, um, I, I post blogs there and, and the podcast is called dot to dot and it's on Apple and various other platforms. Um, and I love hearing from people. I love connecting with people. Um, so anyone who wants to reach out, I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to connect. Yeah. You put some amazing things on, on Twitter. I've been following you there for a long time and I'd, I'd really recommend, you know, particularly coaches pick up mirror thinking, your your latest book and and have a read of that fascinating stuff and uh thanks for coming on thank you so much for having me it was an absolute pleasure thanks for listening all the way to the end as always if you'd like to get in touch with me head to codyroyal.com or find me on twitter and we'll see you next time